Somehow, the national debt has managed to reach $28 trillion. But, like, where is it? It's in a set of electronic schedules maintained by the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service. In auditing the government's financial statements, though, for 2021, the Government Accountability Office found a flaw, a deficiency in the information system controls. With what this is all about and the implications, we turn to the GAO's Director of Financial Management and Assurance, Cheryl Clark. Ms. Clark, good to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's begin with what it is you actually were looking at, because, again, the GAO annually audits the financial statements of the entire federal government. And for that, you have my undying gratitude and sympathy. But what do you look at at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service with respect to the national debt? Treasury borrows money to fund federal operations through the issuance of debt instruments. And Treasury relies on a number of interconnected financial management systems to process and track the money it borrows, to account for the securities it issues, and to manage the federal debt. These systems are maintained and operated by Treasury Fiscal Service and by the Federal Reserve Banks, which serve as the United States fiscal agents. The federal debt securities themselves primarily live in a subsidiary systems that report federal debt-related transactions that feed into fiscal services general ledger. And the general ledger, which accounts for the federal debt and related interest expense, is the primary source of information that is used by fiscal service to prepare the schedules of federal debt, which is the type of financial statements that GAO audits. So it comes in through Treasury, through a bunch of interconnected systems, and spits out into a nice one-page schedule. So somewhere at the bottom of this, though, there is a electronic listing of the actual securities that Treasury has sold and to whom and when, et cetera, et cetera, correct? Yes. And do we know, just out of curiosity, is that like a blockchain where all of these things live? Because I would imagine they would really want those to be non-fungible. Yes, they live in several subsidiary systems that ultimately, again, like the actual dollar amounts from the debt feed into the general ledger. And your report found something, I guess you have reported that you've found repeatedly for several years, deficiencies in the information systems controls. And which systems have these deficiencies? So this, again, gets at the general ledger. And we have been reporting deficiencies for several years. And collectively, we think these deficiencies are significant. They fall into three main general control areas. Security management, which are controls that provide a framework for security risk. And then there's access control issues. And those controls, of course, limit access or inappropriate access to the information. And the third area of general controls that's a concern is configuration management. And those are controls that manage the hardware and the software in the systems. And the reason that these deficiencies are so significant is because they pose a risk to the integrity of the data. Someone could get in and access the data, modify it, disclose it, and a lot of it's sensitive And, you know, it also could lead to disruptions of critical operations. So these deficiencies are significant to financial reporting of the debt information. 
We're speaking with Cheryl Clark. She is the Director of Financial Management and Assurance at the GAO. So, for example, and I'm making this up and let it be known on the record, it's my example, not yours. But could, for example, a Russian hacker get in there and say, well, let's give ourselves a few hundred billion dollars of T-bonds? Well, I would rather not speculate on what a hacker could do. But obviously, um, as I said, these weaknesses do increase the risk that someone could modify the data and disrupt operations. But I will point out that there are a number of controls in place, for example, the role of the Federal Reserve Banks, that the role that the banks play in issuing and redeeming securities, it helps mitigate the risk because there are reconciliations going on between the activities that the Federal Reserve Banks are doing and then fiscal service. So. There are some mitigating risks. We have not elevated this to the level of material weakness yet. Understood. So the fact that it's distributed and the system itself for issuing these securities and recording them is a distributed one between the government and the Federal Reserve System helps mitigate the risk a little bit. Yes. All right. Well, you mentioned that this is a recurring deficiency that you find every year. What does the Bureau say about it? Well, actually, we've had some positive discussions more recently with the Bureau. They responded positively to our report. You know, year after year, we've seen progress, and that progress has resulted in incremental improvements. However, resolving this deficiency is going to require a sustained focus and a commitment. But fiscal service seems to understand the significance of the issues and has come up with some corrective action plans, which we will be looking at during our fiscal year 22 audit, which we've just started. And hopefully those corrective action plans will be specific and get at the root cause of the issues. When it gets to the issue of configuration management, I guess at some point there is commercial software as part of the components here. It seems like the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency over at DHS could maybe help them out here. Did that come up? No, no, that hasn't come up. Well, now it will because everyone's going to hear this. And (laughs) And the access control issues, that relates to what? Who in the Bureau of the Fiscal Service or I guess in the Treasury Department has authorized access to the system? I imagine that's something they need to really guard carefully. Yes. I mean, who has access to the system varies, of course, depending on the system and the business processes that the system is supporting. For example, access to fiscal services general ledger system is limited generally to fiscal service and the Federal Reserve Bank employees who have to enter data, post data, and do reconciliations. But yes, access controls are really important to limit or even to detect inappropriate access. In some ways, these systems, in terms of the sensitivity and access requirements, seem similar to the IRS systems about taxpayers. Is that a fair analogy? Oh, yes. I think I would think that is similar. Yeah, different function, but nevertheless, there has to be only authorized access. And then the disclosure, then, would be a bad result of the wrong person accessing it for the wrong reason. Would that be accurate to say also? Yes, that's right, because this is sensitive data, sensitive programs, and general controls, access being one of the general controls, are important in making sure that the financial systems operate properly. 
and are secure. All right. So who is the uh, belly button to push here then? Is it the technical staff at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service? Does it rise to the Treasury CIO level? Or who do you think needs to really own this and, and get it fixed once and for all? That's a good question. Um, in the past year, in fiscal year 21, a positive move is fiscal service established a committee of senior executives who are responsible for overseeing the remediation of these weaknesses. I mean, ultimately, fiscal service is responsible for resolving the deficiency. But to do that, it's going to require successful coordination among a number of fiscal service organizational units and officials. You know, this is not a one-time fix. It's going to require a sustained effort to fully remediate these weaknesses. And again, in response to our report, fiscal service acknowledged the need for consistent management commitment to address these weaknesses. I mean, they're longstanding weaknesses that are very complex. They affect multiple financial systems, and it's going to take some time, resources, and expertise to fully remediate these weaknesses. I mean, one of the things that we emphasize to fiscal service is the committee's role that they just established, the committee's role is very important, but they need to make sure that the committee has the right technical expertise to oversee, you know, and to question and to evaluate these corrective actions. And that's going to be essential to addressing the weaknesses. Cheryl Clark is Director of Financial Management and Assurance at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
work during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.